Walk the talk. Have you ever heard that statement before? Walking the talk is about living what you claim to believe. It's about consistency. It's about integrity. And it's one of the greatest challenges to the Christian faith. Dr. A.W. Tozer, a famous theologian back in the 20th century, he says, where does Christianity destroy itself in a given generation? It destroys itself by not living in the light, by professing a truth it does not obey. You know, friends, one of the most common criticisms raised against Christians today by people in our secular world is the claim, the charge of hypocrisy. Oh, you Christians, you know, you talk this big game, but you know what? Your lives don't look any different from anyone else's. You, you claim to be this kind of a person, and yet you're doing the same thing that everyone else is doing. And that kind of hypocrisy gives God's people a black eye in our culture. When followers of Jesus fail to walk the talk, it can have truly devastating consequences. I heard a story just recently about a young woman who years ago had walked away from her faith, raised in a great Christian home. But her youth pastor, when she was in high school, had an affair. And because of his lack of integrity, she walked away from it all, just thinking it was a sham. I know of families that have been broken for generations because of marital unfaithfulness. And that example passed down through the generations. I know of churches that have split because of silly controversies. Churches that have fallen apart because of failed financial stewardship on the part of their leaders. See, friends, walking the talk really matters. Living out what we claim to believe as God's people really matters. And the author of the book that we're going to be studying this summer was similarly concerned that followers of Jesus walk the talk. This summer, we're going to be studying the book of James. And the name of our series this summer is Faith 24-7. And the reason I titled that uh, the series that is because, as we're going to see, the book of James is really about what does it mean to live out your faith consistently on a daily basis, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. James is a, is a call to action for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Some background on the book of James. It's most likely the oldest book in the New Testament. Many historians and scholars think that it was probably written maybe as recent as 10 to 15 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. So we're reading one of the earliest uh, accounts of, of life in the Christian faith, one of the earliest instructions given to God's people. The book of James was written by James, who was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. James and Jesus shared the same mother, Mary, but they had different fathers. James, his earthly father, was Joseph. Jesus, obviously, was born through the divine uh, implantation of the Holy Spirit in, in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And so, James and Jesus were brothers. In fact, the Gospels tell us that Mary had many other sons and daughters, James was probably the oldest of Jesus' siblings. James was once a skeptic of his brother Jesus. In fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 5, we are told that even Jesus' own brothers didn't believe his claims. When Jesus started walking around claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be God in flesh, John tells us in John 7, 5, Jesus' own brothers didn't believe him. And yet, James went from being a skeptic of his brother Jesus to becoming one of the early champions of the Christian faith. 
How do you account for that change? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that James was one of the over 500 eyewitnesses to the risen Jesus. He saw his brother bodily raised from the grave. And it was that transformation, it was seeing his brother hang on a cross and die a torturous death and then be placed in a tomb, but then appearing risen again physically that transitioned James from his skepticism to his complete devotion and obedience to Jesus. James was so committed to his brother that he became one of the three early champions of the Christian faith along with Peter and Paul. We read in the New Testament that James was the the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He, He was a foundational member of the early church, leading and guiding God's people after Jesus had ascended into heaven. History tells us that he was known as James the Just because of his righteous lifestyle and devotion. He was also called Old Camel Knees because he spent so much time on his knees in prayer. James would ultimately die a martyr's death for his faith. He was so convinced that his brother was the Messiah, the Son of God, that in 62 AD, 30 years after his brother's death and resurrection and ascension into heaven, James, after leading the church faithfully for 30 years, a champion of Christianity, a champion of Jesus the Messiah, the Jewish Sanhedrin came to James and they said to James, James, if you do not stop proclaiming the name of Jesus, we are going to kill you. James says, I cannot stop proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah. So the Sanhedrin, they took James to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem. And they told James, if you don't renounce Jesus Christ, we're going to throw you off the temple. James says, I can't renounce Jesus. So the Jews threw James off the very top of the temple. His body fell to the ground below, crushed. But he survived the fall. And so the Jews proceeded to stone him to death. Never once did James renounce his faith in his brother Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God. James is somebody worth listening to, friends. We're going to see this summer that there are two primary themes that continually come up in the book of James. They're woven throughout the entire letter. The the first thing that we're going to see throughout our study this summer is, is the relationship between faith and works. You see, out of the 108 verses in the book of James, there are 14 references to faith, but there are 59 commands for us as followers of Jesus to obey. James really is a book all about obedience. James is going to argue that if you have genuine faith, that genuine faith is going to work itself out in action. In fact, in chapter 2 of the book of James, we're going to see that James actually makes the case that a faith without works, a faith that's not being put into action, is probably not even a real legitimate faith. It's no faith at all, James says. So, So this is a challenging book for us. James is all about obedience and living consistently as followers of Jesus. And and, and because, according to James, genuine faith is going to be put into action, genuine faith is going to work and make a difference, what James is going to help us realize is is that genuine faith has a real impact in the world. And this leads us to the second theme that we're going to see throughout our study this summer. The second theme is the role of faith in everyday life. This comes up all throughout the book of James. James is arguably the most practical book in the entire Bible. 
If you want a practical study of what does it mean to follow Jesus, how does this impact me in my everyday life, then, then you've come to the right place because James is your book. In fact, throughout the book of James, what we're going to see, he deals with a whole variety of issues and, and questions and challenges that have raised you know, concerns for Christians throughout the centuries. James deals with a whole bunch of these issues, issues like trials, temptation, money, favoritism, social justice, the tongue, worldliness, pride, making plans, sickness, prayer, and many others. And so what we're going to find is that James is going to be a very relatable study. There's going to be a lot in this series this summer that, that's going to directly apply to you, your life, your faith, your circumstances, but it's also a study that's going to repeatedly challenge us. James is going to challenge us to assess the state of our own faith. But he's also going to motivate us. He's going to motivate us to consistent obedience and to radical action as followers of Jesus. Now this morning, excuse me, this morning as we dive into our study, uh, starting in chapter 1, the first thing you're going to notice right away is that James doesn't waste any time getting to the meat of his argument. Okay, James isn't a guy who likes to beat around the bush. I mean, he's a guy who gets right to the point. And what we're going to find this morning is that James is going to jump right in and he's going to start his letter by giving us some practical encouragement on facing the trials of life. How many of you ever had trials in life before? Show of hands, a few of you out there, right? I told you this was going to be a very practical study. James starts right out his book dealing with the reality of the trials that we face in life. I was just thinking this week, it was seven years ago this week that my dad unexpectedly passed away. We had just celebrated his 61st birthday when he died suddenly in his sleep, went to take a nap, and 15 minutes later my mom found him and he was gone. And it was a heartbreaking loss for our family. My dad was one of the greatest guys you'd ever want to meet, just a just a rock in our family, the, the heart of our life as a family. And it was a really hard time. And it's been a hard seven years since then, even, especially for my mom, just you know, doing life without her partner. I remember the, the weekend of my dad's funeral service, my uncle Jim, who recently retired from uh, the pastor, he had been a pastor for 35 years. My uncle Jim, at the weekend of my dad's funeral, he pulled my brother and I aside one morning and he just said, you know, guys, your grandpa Harold, my grandpa was a pastor too. He said, your grandpa Harold, he used to say, you'll never be a truly great pastor until you have your heart broken. And you know, friends, I'm not claiming that I'm a great pastor today, but I've seen the reality of how God has used the trials in my life and those times of God breaking my heart to help me grow, to mature me, to, to, to give me greater gifts as a, as a follower of Christ and as a pastor. And I've seen how God has used the trials in my life, not only my father's death, but over the last few years as my wife's been battling stage three breast cancer and everything that went along with that, the surgeries and the chemo and the radiation and, and then family trials and struggles. We're not immune to all those things, right? I mean, we, we have the same trials that many of you face, you know, paying the bills and raising kids and getting homework done and getting people dressed into church on time on Sunday morning. You know what I'm saying? Like, like we're not immune to the trials of life. And, and, and what I've learned throughout all of these trials is I've seen how, how the trials of our life are God's greatest classroom for maturing us and growing our faith. 
And God's used the trials in my life in a very profound way to, to mold me and to shape me and to prepare me for ministry. Some of you in this room, I've sat in hospital rooms with you as you've had to say goodbye to loved ones. Many of you I've come alongside and prayed with after you've been diagnosed with critical diseases. Many of you I've shared moments of grief and hurt and prayer as we've said goodbye to loved ones. And you know, my, my prayer is that God has used the trials in my life to better equip me to serve you as your pastor. And I know that he really has in many ways. You see, one of the things that I've experienced through the trials of life is that while our trials are never pleasant, they are never pointless. You need to know that. God wastes nothing. God uses all the trials in our lives for his plans and purposes. In fact, in Romans 8.28, the Apostle Paul tells us this very thing. The Apostle Paul says that we know, can we jump to that passage, please, Romans 8.28? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. Paul says in all things, God works for the good, even the trials in life. And so this morning, as we get into our study of the book of James, and we see James begin his study, uh, his message dealing with the reality of trials, what I want to highlight for us this morning are, are four lessons in particular that we can learn as we deal with the trials of life. I want to read our passage this morning, and then I want to come back, and I want to, I want to comment on these four lessons that we can learn about trials, according to the book of James. James starts out chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 12 together this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. It's a powerful passage. And as I said earlier, James doesn't waste any time. He gets right to the heart of the matter. The first lesson that we see here in our passage this morning comes in verses 1 through 4, where James tells us it's through our trials that we learn to grow in our relationship with the Lord. Through our trials, we learn to grow in our relationship with the Lord. Now, I want to give us some context this morning as we look at James' instructions on trials. James begins his letter by telling us who he's writing to. He says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, who are these people? 
Who is James writing to? This is important background for us to understand as we look at James's teaching on trials here this morning because he's writing to a very specific group of people. The key to understanding who James is writing to is found in the book of Acts. You see, James is writing his letter, as I said earlier, probably 10 to 15 years after Jesus has ascended into heaven. And so where we are now is in the history of the early church. We are right around chapter 7 of the book of Acts. And in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, we are 10 years down the journey of the early church. They're growing, they're maturing as followers of Christ, they're worshiping together, they're beginning to face trials from the Jewish culture around them. And in Acts chapter 7, one of the early leaders of the church, a man by the name of Stephen, he gives a powerful sermon, and the Jews listening to the sermon take offense to the message of the gospel that Stephen proclaims. And so the Jews set out to to destroy Stephen. Stephen became the very first martyr of the early church. We read about Stephen and what happened after his martyrdom in Acts chapter 7. When they heard this, when they heard Stephen's sermon, the Jews were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, the Jews covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they rushed him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul would eventually become the Apostle Paul, but he was a persecutor of the early church. While the Jews were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Friends, who is James writing to? Who are the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations? James is writing to these believers who upon the persecution of the early church following Stephen's death were forced to flee Jerusalem. They were forced to flee for their lives as this great persecution broke out. See, understand something this morning. When James talks to us about trials today, James is not talking as someone who doesn't know the reality and the pain that come with the trials of life. When James talks about trials today, he's not talking about trials like, oh shoot, you know, I didn't get a front row spot at Walmart later today. James is talking about the very real trials that God's people were facing 2,000 years ago, being forced to leave their homes, being destroyed, being killed, families being split apart. These are the people James is writing to. And it's in the midst of these trials that James starts out his letter in verse 2. He says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. Consider it pure joy. Wow. How do you do that? Is that even possible? Well, what you need to understand here, friends, When James says, consider it pure joy, he's not talking about our feelings. He's talking about an attitude. 
and attitude in the midst of trials. See, James isn't saying that we should pretend our trials are fun or we should just put on a happy face in the midst of our trials. He's encouraging us to embrace a particular attitude while we go through our trials. He's saying there's a way to think about our trials that can actually bring us joy and gratitude. Let me share with you this morning about a man that many consider to be our greatest president. When he was seven years of age, his family was forced to leave their home. They were destitute. When he was seven years old, he was forced to go to work just to provide ends meet for his family. At nine years old, his mother died. He lost his job as a store clerk when he was 20. He wanted to go into law, but he didn't have either the education or the means in order to go to law school. At age 23, he went into debt to become a partner in a, sp- in a small store. But three years later, his partner died and left him saddled with debt that took him years to pay off. When he was 28, after courting a girl for four years, he asked her to marry him. And she turned him down and broke his heart. The woman he eventually did marry suffered from bipolar disorder. And she was known for her violent outbursts in public, even against him. They had a four-year-old son who tragically died unexpectedly. When he was 37 years old, he ran for Congress. Three times he failed. On the fourth time he ran, he was elected, but he failed to earn a re-election bid. When he was 45, he ran for the Senate, and he lost. At age 47, he ran for the vice presidency, and he lost. At the age of 51, he was elected president of the United States. Now, you would think this would be a great cause for celebration, but it was his election as president that lit the fuse that started the Civil War. Over 600,000 Americans died under his presidency. The worst war in American history. Now, you would think that all these trials, all these heartaches would devastate this man. And yet it was Abraham Lincoln who called for a national holiday that we celebrate today known as Thanksgiving. See, Abraham Lincoln, even in the midst of all of these trials, all of this heartache, found the joy within him to give thanks to God. Where does that kind of joy come from? How do you cultivate that? Well, James tells us it's a recognition that God is using our trials to produce a glorious result. Let's read verses 3 through 4 together. James goes on to say, after telling them, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. In verse 3, he says, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds because your trials are developing perseverance in you. Now, the perseverance that James is talking about is very interesting. The Greek word for perseverance is hypomene, 
and, and, and hippomene, perseverance, the kind that James is talking about. He's not talking about gritting it out through a difficult time. He's not talking about, you know, bearing through an ordeal. You know, it's not like when you go to the dentist, you know, and Dr. Strew's working on your teeth and you're just clenching your fist there, you know, just trying to get through it. That's not the kind of perseverance that James is talking about. The kind of perseverance that James is talking about is, is the kind of perseverance that sees the goal in mind and perseveres for the sake of victory. It's the kind of perseverance that, that is about endurance and about overcoming for the sake of a greater goal. It, it sort of reminds me of when I was in high school playing football at Eden Prairie High School. Uh, football is a big deal in Eden Prairie. We've won, we've won 10 state championships in the last 20 years. And that's a big deal over there. And the, the coaches work as hard, and they work as hard because the goal in mind is not about winning a handful of games. The goal is about winning championships. And I can remember two-a-day practices in the month of August, and our coaches would just work us like, like dogs, you know, and we'd be running lines. We'd start at the end zone, and we'd run to the 10-yard line and back, and then the 15-yard line and back, and the 20-yard line and back, and the 30-yard line, and we'd do this all the way into the field and back, and if you didn't finish in the right, in the right time limit, you'd have to do it all over again. And I remember learning perseverance through those trials, and the goal in mind is what drove us to keep going. It was the goal in mind, the victory, the championship that motivated us to continue to persevere. That's the kind of perseverance that James is talking about. When James talks about victory here, he's talking about persevering through, through our trials so that we can grow in maturity. And the maturity that James is describing, it's not like, hey, all right, I made it through puberty. Look at that, I got some chest hair now, right? He's not talking about that kind of maturity. The kind of maturity that James is talking about is the ultimate maturity. It's the kind of maturity that develops us more and more in conformity with the likeness of Jesus Christ. And that's what James means here by complete. Friends, there's no higher goal. There's no greater goal for followers of Jesus than to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And so James is encouraging us here to embrace our trials with joy because God uses our trials to attain in us a glorious goal. This is what the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 8.18. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Our trials are molding us and shaping us and refining us for the sake of a greater goal. Friends, do you understand that? Everything in this life is simply preparation, molding you, shaping you, preparing you for the person you're going to be for eternity. And when you understand that, when you understand that God is using the trials in your life to prepare you for this glorious goal of one day being conformed into the likeness of our Savior and Lord, that is the key to embracing an attitude of joy. You don't have to like the trials in life. You don't have to pretend the trials in life are fun, but you can embrace an attitude of joy that says, God, I trust you and I believe in you and I know that even in this you are good and you have a greater plan and purpose that you're using these trials to accomplish in me. The second thing we learn in our passage this morning is that through our trials, we grow in our recognition of God's wisdom. Let me read verse 5 for us this morning. James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. 
Why does James talk about wisdom here? Well, friends, the reason is because when you are in the midst of the trials of life, man, you need wisdom, don't you? Sometimes when you're in the midst of the trials of life, you don't even know what to do. The trials of life will hit you like a curveball. They'll sneak up behind you, smack you upside the head, and you won't even know what's going on half the time. I mean, the trials of life will paralyze you. They will leave you shell-shocked and confused. I remember sitting in the doctor's office three years ago with my wife after her diagnosis with cancer, and, and I, I was just like numb. The doctor's talking about surgery and chemo and radiation, and, and it's like I didn't even know what was going on. And it's in those times when you're overwhelmed, when you're devastated, when your heart is broken, that you most need God's wisdom. And James tells us here that when we're in the midst of the trials of life, when we call out to the Lord, God will give us wisdom and he will give it to us generously because that's the kind of God he is. He's a good and faithful and gracious God who gives to his people generously without finding any fault. But James adds an important qualifier here to how we're to ask God for wisdom. See, this is a key point to understand. Let me read verses 6 through 8 again for us. James says, But when he asks for wisdom, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. Well, well, wait a minute here, Jason. Are are you telling me I can't have doubts as a Christian? Like if I have doubts and I pray, God's not going to answer my prayer? That's not what James is saying, okay? That's not what James is talking about when he talks about doubt here. The the key to understanding what James is talking about is looking at this whole passage in context. When James is talking about the person who doubts, he's not talking about having simple questions about, you know, God's will and plan in your life. What James is talking about doubt is the double-minded man, the double-minded person who has one foot in the kingdom of God and another foot in the kingdom of the world. James is talking about the person who is hedging their bets. They're asking God for wisdom, yet they're pursuing worldly wisdom at the same time. They have split allegiances. They have split loyalties. It reminds me of a young woman that I I counseled many years ago. She had just become a follower of Jesus, and she was struggling as she was growing in her faith and trying to follow God, and, and, and she was really wrestling with her prayer life. And I discovered as I talked to her that she's praying and asking God for wisdom and guidance, but at the same time, she had been practicing astrology for years. Every day she read her horoscope looking for wisdom and guidance for her life. Now, friends, this is the kind of person that God describes as a double-minded person. You can't expect God to give you wisdom when your allegiance is split between seeking him for truth and seeking things of the world for truth, especially in a cultic practice that God condemns in the Old Testament, right? That's a split allegiance. God says that person is double-minded and they are unstable and they shouldn't expect anything from the Lord, okay? That's a dangerous place. Double-mindedness is really serious business, Where's your allegiance? Where's your devotion? Where's your commitment? I I, I talked to another family a few years back. They had just become followers of Jesus, a young couple. And the husband was on fire for his faith, but his wife, she wasn't quite there with him yet. 
right? He was kind of further down the road than she was at this point. And he was really concerned about his wife because they would read and study the Bible together, but she was at the same time reading all these new age books and self-help gurus and all this garbage on the internet about, you know, how to succeed in life and how to have happy relationships. And, and this guy's thinking like, look at, we got to follow God's ways, not the ways of the world. She was double-minded. And James says that double-mindedness makes you unstable. It reminds me of my friend Scott. He and his dad were recently up in Canada on a fishing trip. Scott was telling me that one morning while they were getting ready to go out, his dad was holding the boat at the dock. He had one foot in the boat, the other foot on the dock, and he had his hands full of gear, and the boat started slowly drifting away. And Scott says, the last thing I remember is my dad, this panicked look on his face. He said, I'm going in. And he just did a face plant right into the water. That's the kind of person James is talking about. That's the double-mindedness and the unstable person that James is warning us against being. James is saying, look at if you follow Jesus and you pursue him, and if you seek his wisdom, he will give you wisdom, and he'll give it to you generously. But if you're double-minded in your pursuit of the Lord, James says, don't expect anything. That kind of person is not going to receive anything from the Lord. So double-mindedness is a dangerous place to be. The third lesson we learn in our passage this morning is in our trials, we learn to grow in reliance on the gospel. We learn to grow in reliance on the gospel. Now, when you read verses 9 to 11, at first it might appear that James has gone off track here. All right? So James has been talking about trials in life, and now all of a sudden, James starts talking about wealthy believers and humble believers and, and money and stuff. And it's like, wait a minute, what does this have to do with trials? Okay? But James isn't confused here. Instead, what James clearly understood was that our economic position in life can play a significant role in our outlook in response to trials. And so James offers some important counsel to both humble believers as well as rich believers here. Let me read verses 9 through 11 again. James says, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms fall, its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Now, James wasn't confused here. He was very intentional in raising the issue of wealth with these Christian believers. To those who are of humble means or lesser financial means, James says, take pride in your high position. Now, what does this mean? Well, James is encouraging these believers to remember their exalted position as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friend, you might be here this morning and you might be of lesser financial means. You might be of humble means. But James says, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are a child of the king of the universe. You are an heir to all the treasures of heaven. One day you will live in a heavenly mansion and walk on streets of gold. And so James says, it doesn't matter if you have little financial means, if you're very humble in this life, because of the gospel, you can take pride in your high position as a child of God. Friends, the gospel is a reason to hope. And now to the rich believers, James says that they should take pride in their low position. And what does this mean? 
Well, friends, James wants the rich Christians to remember their humility in light of the gospel. You see, friends, here's the thing. Money can buy a whole lot of things. It can buy you a nice house. It can buy you cars. It can buy you boats and motorcycles. But you know what money can't buy you? Money can't buy you peace with God. Money can't buy you a right relationship with your heavenly father. And the only way to experience those things is to humble yourself and bow your knee at the foot of the cross and put Jesus on the throne of your heart and say, Lord, I'm not number one. You are. And see, James reminds these rich Christians that no matter how much money you have, every single one of us is humbled at the cross of Jesus Christ. James also wants these wealthy Christians to remember the fleeting nature of riches. That's what his illustration about the sun-scorched plant is all about. James is basically saying here, remember the things of this world are temporary. They don't last, so hold on to them lightly. Don't invest in things, as Jesus said, that moth and rust will destroy. Invest in things that have eternal value. See, friends, wealth can be a very deceitful thing. Many people in our world today naively believe that money is the key to peace and happiness. And our culture regularly equates wealth with security and stability. But I'll tell you something, friends, when the trials of life come, when a child dies unexpectedly, or you receive that cancer diagnosis, or your spouse walks out on you, or you're battling depression, I'll tell you what, when the trials of life come, all the money in the world won't buy you peace. We saw two sad examples of this just this week. Famous fashion designer Kate Spade and the world-renowned chef Anthony Bourdain, who both took their lives this week. They had everything. Kate Spade, just this past year, sold her company for $2 billion. She had all the money in the world. Anthony Bourdain, best-selling chef, author, television star, millionaire. I read yesterday even his mom was shocked. She said, I can't believe he did this. He had it all. But he didn't have peace. It was interesting, a couple weeks ago, Anthony Hopkins, the famous Hollywood actor, he gave an interview over in London. In his interview, he said, you know, I meet young people, and they want to act, and they want to be famous And I tell them, when you get to the top of the tree, there's nothing up there. Most of this is nonsense. Most of this is a lie. See, friends, money, wealth, fame, power, all these things cannot insulate you from the trials of life. They cannot give you peace. The only place you'll find true peace and contentment is in a relationship with the one who is called the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And whether you're rich or poor, there's only one way to know his peace, and that's to invite him into your heart and make him the Lord of your life. Have you done that? Have you embraced Jesus as your Savior and Lord? He's the only source of peace. The fourth lesson we see in our passage this morning, James tells us in verse 12 that through our trials we learn to grow in our remembrance of reward. James says, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 
Friends, Jesus has promised us that one day all of our trials are going to come to an end. And there's a glorious reward awaiting us. And I'll tell you something, friends, on that day, the only burden we're going to bear from that point forward is the crown of life that Jesus places on the head of those who run the race faithfully, to those who persevere to the end, fixing their eyes on Jesus. Friends, is that your hope today? Is that your source of joy in the midst of trials? I pray that you'll keep the reward in sight. I pray that you'll learn to persevere the way James encourages us in the face of trials. Perseverance with victory in mind. Perseverance with the reward in mind. Running the race, fixing your eyes on Jesus the entire way. Your source of hope. Your source of peace. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this powerful passage this morning. And Lord, this is a passage that speaks to every one of us here because we've all faced the trials of life. And Lord, some of us have had to experience some very difficult trials. Some of us haven't experienced the trials yet that you have in store for us to come. And and Lord, I just pray that no matter where we are in our journey of life, that each and every one of us would begin or learn or develop a greater attitude of joy and perseverance because we know that it's in our trials you mature us and you shape us and you make us more and more into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, help us to lean on you and trust in you in the face of our trials. Help us to remember the great reward you have in store for your people who faithfully run the race, the crown of life. Lord, let that be our goal. Let that be our hope. And Jesus, if there's anybody here this morning who is suffering through a very difficult time right now, I just pray that you would be close to them, that you would be their source of joy today, that you would be their source of hope, be their prince of peace. If there's anybody here, Lord, who needs wisdom today as they're facing the trials of life, I pray, God, that they would have the faith to call out to you and to ask you with sincerity and allegiance and full devotion and know with confidence that you will lead them and guide them. You will give them the wisdom they need. You will protect them in the decisions they make because that's the kind of God you are. That's the promise you've given us. So help us to not be double-minded, Lord, but help us to walk with you and pursue you faithfully. We thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness to us. Even in the midst of trials, you are good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.